may be seated. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 14. And today we're going to be reading verses 21 through 31. 21 through 31. If I can ask you to advance to the first slide, the sermon one. There we go. Okay. I know this is not... Ty had picked out a, a beautiful uh, metallic bronze kind of gold thing uh, as an illustration. But uh, I wanted to actually use this um, before I read. Uh, specifically, this is at uh, bas relief hieroglyphics taken from the Temple of Karnak. If you go to the Temple of Karnak, which is located in Luxor, Egypt... This is the hieroglyphic relief that you see as you walk through the, what's called the Bubasite uh, portal. It records, believe it or not, in hieroglyphs, Pharaoh Shishak's successful campaign against Judah and also Israel in 926 BC. Along the left-hand side there, you'll see those things that are highlighted. Each of those is a little hieroglyph, which uh, indicates a town in uh, going from the Negev all the way up through to Megiddo uh, in the north of Israel. It indicates a fortified town or city that was destroyed, 187 that were captured and looted. The names include Beth Horon, Gibeon, Penuel, Megiddo, and so on. And the center of the drawing on the right had uh, Pharaoh Shishak actually holding ropes connected to the necks of captured Israelites. He is taking them away into captivity. Now, I point this all out before I read the biblical account for this simple reason. I, I, I point it out to emphasize that as we read this section of Scripture, and indeed every single section of Scripture in First Kings and Second Kings and all of the historical books, we are not talking about once upon a time. We are talking about events in history. This is actual history we're about to read about. We are about to read about a state that declined very quickly and then an actual campaign that was brought against them that resulted in the capture of cities, they're being sacked, people being killed and enslaved and a divided kingdom being decisively toppled from its position of leadership in that particular area and becoming almost a vassal state. And the question, of course, that we need to be applying to ourselves as we read these words is, how did this happen? How did they go from such an exalted position to such a low estate so very quickly? Why did Israel go from being a, a, a rich and mighty nation that had trade with all sorts of places to a weak and divided kingdom forced to pay tribute to other empires. Uh, the Bible does not leave us in the dark about that. The Bible makes it very clear. So I pray that we would read with open eyes and we would recognize that these things are the truth. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, our Father, Lord, as we read your word, I pray that we would learn from it. Lord, I pray we would learn from it even as your people did not. Lord, you, you strove to teach them through chastening, to do good, to be faithful, to listen to your voice. And yet they hardened their hearts, Lord. They stiffened their necks and they would not turn. Lord, let us not be like that. Lord, let us be malleable. Turn our heart in whatever direction you need them to go to do your will. 
We would rather, Lord, suffer affliction as the offscourings of the world than go against your will and suffer eternal damnation. Help us then, O Lord, as we read, to have open eyes and open ears. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Chapter 14, and as I said, I'm going to be reading, starting with verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naama, an Ammonitess. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guardroom. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naama and Ammonitus. Then Abajam, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Christian readers of the Bible always tend to put themselves in the best particular spot, just as when we read almost any literature, we always associate ourselves with the heroes and the good guys. You know, we want to be thinking of ourselves as allied with Aragorn and the writers of Rohan and the Hobbits and so on, not Saruman with his, his you know, attempting to, to ingratiate himself with evil or certainly not with Sauron. We, nobody, nobody watches The Princess Bride or reads the book and thinks to themselves, man, I wish I could have worked with Prince Humperdinck. You know, you always want, you always want to be there with, with uh, uh, Wesley and, and, of course, Buttercup and, and so on and be there storming the castle together. That's the kind of thing we do. We always put ourselves in the, the good guy slot. And I find we do the same thing when it comes to the Bible. We, we want to go into the promised land and fight the giants with Joshua and Caleb. We don't want to listen to the other ten spies who are saying, no, run away. We, we are Peter saying, see, we have left all and followed you. We're not the rich young ruler going away sorrowful because we have great possessions. We associate with the tax collector who beats his breast and, say, and says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, not the Pharisee, justifying himself and so on. We're the, we're the weeping people, the, the women who <coughs> saw Jesus being crucified and their eyes were filled with tears, not the people at the gate shouting, crucify, crucify. We do that again and again when we read the biblical text. And here, no doubt, the majority of Christians reading about what happened in the southern kingdom under Rehoboam, they would read that and they would shake their heads and uh, cluck their tongue and say, oh, this is terrible. 
I mean, it's bad enough that the northern kingdom had become apostate. They created these centers of false worship where God is portrayed as a, as a golden calf, where the second commandment is violated and all the festivals are changed and anyone could be a priest. But now in the south, in the kingdom of Judah, in the very place where the holy city, Jerusalem, was located, where God had set his name and had made, and had. Uh, had told them that they should build a temple where he would meet with his people to replace the moving tabernacle in the very center of that particular kingdom. Now they too are going astray. This was the only place on earth where God could rightly be sacrificed to, where his worship could be seen as it was supposed to be. The people of Judah were supposed to be a people who loved the Lord and who obeyed his commandments. And instead they had gone astray. Rehoboam, a descendant of King David, is worshiping false gods, the gods of the Canaanites. The Christian would say, how did they not realize that if they departed from worshiping the Lord the way that he said they should worship him, they would eventually be cursed? Didn't they not remember what God had said again and again in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, how he had said, if after you enter into the promised land, you are faithful to me. If you love me and keep my commandments, you will be blessed. But if you depart from loving me and you set your love upon other gods, if you have other gods before me, or if you depart from my commandments and say to yourself, we can worship God however we want, then curses will fall upon you. The Christian says, how could they do that? How could they forget well, the answer is that the people of Israel forgot because they wanted to. They wanted to. Nobody forced them into false worship. They willingly went into it. You see, they thought this was, and we need to remember this, they thought this were pro was progress. It, people often forget this. They forget, for instance, that the Nazis did not wake up in the morning and say, let's go out and do something horrible. Let's be thoroughly evil. Nobody thinks they're the baddies. And these people certainly didn't. They thought that what they were doing was an improvement over what had been in the past. They were making progress. They were becoming pluralistic. And there were a multitude of reasons that they wanted this new worship. And they eschewed the old worship. They pushed it away. But first, there are some things that we should, we should notice in the context of this some information uh, that we need to take to heart first. Much of the information that we read in this particular section is not new. It's a summary of the reign of Rehoboam, and we've, we know some of these things. First, we see Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He is said to have come to the throne when he was 41 years old. He reigned in Jerusalem, the capital of his fathers, and so on, the place where God had set his name. This is not new information. But then we are told something that is new about him that we didn't know before. His mother's name was Naamah, and she was an Ammonitess. This was one of Solomon's foreign wives, specifically for Ammon. Ammon is located basically where Ammon in Jordan, the capital of Jordan, is located today. And the reason why Solomon had married this woman, it's twofold. First, this was a political marriage. She was the daughter of uh, the king of Ammon, Shobi, who was a friend of King David. 
but it's also uh, revealed in her name. Naama means literally beauty. So we can expect that this woman was a great beauty. But we know that regardless of how beautiful she was or how important the political arrangements that came from this marriage were, regardless of all of that, she should not have been the wife of Solomon. This was an unbeliever. And we see that the Ammonites, throughout the, the Bible, we're told they worshiped Milcom and they worshiped Molech. Molech, who you worshiped by sacrificing your infant children to him, rolling them, literally placing them in the arms of the idol so that they fell down into the fire burning in the belly of the idol and were there consumed. It was likely that, that this mother and Solomon uh, who had built temples to these false gods, had a pernicious influence together on their son, sending him in the wrong direction. Clearly, we see Rehoboam embracing the pluralism of his father. We, he would have said, can worship Jehovah, the God of Israel, in this great and mighty temple that my father built, but we also can worship the Canaanite gods. We can have the best of both worlds. And how progressive that is. We've, we're not being sectarian and culturally straightened and all old and fuddy-duddy and so on. We're, we're looking to other nations. We're becoming you know, multicultural right here. We've embraced false worship. Oh, no, we don't want to call it false worship. We've embraced other ways of worshiping God. Now, when we talk about the ways that they're said to have worshipped God here in this section, the, we uh, see first the high places. The high places were places which were literally on the hills outside of the towns where Yahweh actually was worshipped. But unfortunately, not according to his commandments and not by the people that he had appointed. For instance, in chapter 3 and verse 3, we, we read, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. This was in his earlier life. Except that he sacrificed and burned in, uh, incense at the high places. This was prior to the erection of the temple, of course, but it still should not have happened. It should have been the case that the only place where God was worshipped prior to the temple was at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that he had uh, caused to be built for his name's sake. But they go beyond that, worshipping the Lord God in whatever way they see fit, in whatever locale, and whoever wants to do it. They went way beyond that. They set up these sacred pillars. The sacred pillars were essentially, uh, they were wood and stone totem poles, we could think of, uh, for the, uh, the worship of God. They indicated these false deities and so on. The wooden images were even worse. They were, uh, they were obscene images, phallic symbols associated with uh, Asherah worship. Uh, and the author, in order to drive home exactly how abominable the religious practices of these Canaanite deities were, that the people of God were embracing, he says something that he feels will shock anybody who knows the moral law of God. He has a detail that, that would have caused the, you know, the, all the color to drain from their faces and for them to say, how could they do that? That's awful. And that is, he said, there were perverted Persons in the land. There were male shrine prostitutes, homosexual prostitutes at these places of worship, associated with the worship of these false gods. And then he goes on to say that the Canaanites, they did everything that the Canaanites, whom the Lord God had cursed. You remember, the Lord had said that he had, he had been 
gracious to the Canaanite people. He had withheld his hand for 400 years. In the end, it was 430 years before the people of Israel were supposed to go in as his instruments of judgment upon them. And the Lord again and again listed off the awful things that they did, sacrificing their children, engaging in all of this, this, uh, frankly, just obscene worship, these abominations. And now his own people whom he planted in the land, his own beloved, they have entered into this worship. They have become spiritual adulterers. They have provoked the Lord, therefore, to jealousy. Now, modern audiences, when you say the Lord God is a jealous God, they, oh, that's petty, that's ridiculous. I once heard a long diatribe by Oprah. She, she blamed a pastor saying that our God was a jealous God for the reason that, that she eschewed Christianity as a, as a young girl. Oh, how could God be jealous? Well, God is jealous because he loves his people. Paul House explains it very well. This is an extended quote, but I think he, he sums it up. He says, they provoked him to jealousy, a phrase that troubles many readers of scripture who consider jealousy a solely negative trait. Jealous protection of what is rightly one's own, however, is justified. For example, most marriage partners do not want their spouses violated sexually. They are justifiably protective of an exclusive sexual relationship. Most parents are jealous concerning the right to raise their child, so they are justifiably protective of their parental responsibilities. In these examples, jealousy is a good and normal trait. God's jealousy is equally positive in this verse. Judah is part of the Lord's chosen people. The Lord chose Abraham, delivered Israel from Egypt, gave Moses the covenant, provided Israel a new home in Canaan, and established David and Solomon as their leaders. Israelites are God's people, and Yahweh is Israel's God. For him to be jealous of this exclusive relationship is no character flaw. Instead, it magnifies God's righteous concern and covenant loyalty. Anything less than this kind of justifiable protectedness would indicate a careless attitude toward destructive behavior like idolatry and sensuality. And I would add this. The Lord is jealous for his worship because no other worship saves. The religion that they were creating, the religion that they were practicing was not salvific. It did not point people to the coming Redeemer, the blessing of the nations, Emmanuel, God with us, Jehovah Sid Kinu, God our righteousness, namely the Lord Jesus Christ who was promised and coming. Rather, the worship that the people of Judah had entered into emphasized works and fertility. Uh, fertility rather. Um, they thought that by their sacrifices, they could placate these false gods, and by their abominable sexual practices, they could excite the false gods to procreate and make the land fertile. And so by doing these things, by their own works, they brought down the curses of the Lord. They thought that this would give them favor. Instead, the Lord had said, no, this will not make you favor. This will bring down the same curses that caused the Canaanites to be driven out of the land. He had pronounced these curses Again and again, one of the places where they are most uh, quickly, succinctly, best spelled out is Leviticus 26. The Lord had first said, if they were faithful, if they loved him, if they kept his commandments after they entered into the land, he would watch over them. He said, no one can touch you. You're You're the apple of my eye, as he would put it later on. And whoever touches you, touches me. We see an instance of that kind of love in the way that Jesus addresses Saul. You remember after he stops him, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. And God 
the Son, Jesus Christ, addresses him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He associates himself so much with his people that to touch them is to touch him. And the Lord had promised when they went in, he said, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. It doesn't matter how mighty they are. It doesn't matter how great the number in the opposing army. If you're with me, no one can stand against you. Any man with God is a majority. It doesn't matter how many there are that stand against him. But if you disobey my commandments, if you go after false gods, he had warned, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And we saw that in the awful judges cycle. And they should have remembered what had happened to their their forebears, their grandparents, when they had worshipped false gods. The Lord had said, okay, let those gods protect you. And they had fallen under his curse. Bad things had happened, but they didn't remember. The Lord took away his protecting hand, and so they were like a house without a roof in the middle of a deluge. All of their protection was gone. And Shishak, who had protected Jeroboam, you remember, he had, he had invited him into Egypt and provided him with refuge when Solomon was seeking to kill him. And then he sent him out into Israel in order to weaken them. He was like the Germans. During World War I, they had protected uh, Lenin because they saw him as an instrument for bringing down Imperial Russia. They knew that the Bolsheviks, if they inserted Lenin and his people into Russia, would be a cancer that would destroy that particular kingdom. And so that is exactly what they did. And Shishak had done the same thing. Shishak now sees his opportunity. This is not the kingdom of David or Solomon in its heyday. This is a kingdom in decline. This is a house of cards. These are a weak and decadent people. He sees the, the way that they have turned. I mean, it would have been impossible. The spies would have been telling him how they'd turned away from their own gods. And now they're worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And now they're entering into the, these practices, these abominable practices that even the Egyptians would have said, ew, it's disgusting. Even they didn't worship that way. And that's what these people are doing. And so he sees his opportunity to bring down this kingdom. Now, we don't read that Jerusalem was pillaged, but we do know that he took all of the other fortified cities and fortresses. They fell to Shishak, and he, finally he came up to besiege Jerusalem. And so Rehoboam capitulates, and he hands over all the gold and all of the, all of the treasures of both the palace and the temple. And it says he literally takes everything that had any value. And much is made of the fact that this is brought out as an illustration that Solomon's honor guards, golden shields, these were taken. And Rehoboam doesn't have the ability to replace them. All he can replace them with are these inferior shields of bronze. What the author of 1 Kings is telling us is the golden age of Israel is over decisively. Never again would they be first in the region. They had become third-rate and they had become a power that would be completely enmeshed in civil war with the other tribes, the two tribes in the south fighting constantly against the ten tribes in the north. What a disaster. 
Instead of being a people who were united and strong and brought together by a common worship of Yahweh and watched over by him, they became a people who were dissolute and tearing at one another, who had no commonalities any longer. Does that sound familiar to you by any chance? Have you ever noticed the division that afflicts our nation? It's startling, isn't it? How weak we've become, how dissolute we've become. And why? Well, the answer is here, brothers and sisters, because we have abandoned the word of God. That's what happened to them. Now, why did Judah fall into this false worship? There were, there were so many reasons. So many reasons. It would have seemed quite rational to them to have abandoned the old worship. First, consider how unlike the worship of the temple it was. Uh, the temple was so far away from most people. In, in fact, for many people in Israel, it was several days' journey. You had to also drive the kids along with you, and you had to take your unblemished sacrifice and make sure it got there alive. And, and then when you got to the temple, it was the same every time. It was always the Levites and the priests conducting the worship according to the instructions that God had given. It was also very proper as well, so, so very uh, dignified, so very respectful and reverent, uh, decent and in order. I mean, it was so decent that there were instructions given to the priests in their clothes so that as they ascended the steps to go up to the altar of sacrifice, you wouldn't be able to see you know, their, their legs and so on. Everything had, had decorum to it and so on. And all you did was you handed over your sacrifice and then you watched and you listened to what was being said and, and being proclaimed and you would pray and then you would eat the, the, the feast, the sacrifices had provided and then you would go back home and then you would repeat that, that regular cycle again and again and again and again. And everything, when you got to the temple, was meant to show you that you are a sinner. And that you can only be saved by the mercy and the grace of God. That there was nothing that you could do that would take away your sin. Your sins were so bad that they had to be atoned for by blood sacrifices. It was a reminder again and again of your fallen state, of God's holiness, and of how God himself if the gap was to be bridged, had to come near. And he had to reveal himself to us. We couldn't climb up into heaven to see him. We couldn't go to high places and think to ourselves, I am now in heaven. I have climbed up to God. I understand him better. It was a revealed religion. God came down and he spoke to them. But the worship of the Canaanite gods and the worship in the high places, it was, it was so different. First, it's local. It's just outside town. It's right there on the hill. We can walk. <laughs> How convenient is this? There's ample parking, everybody. We'll just go up to the hill and worship. We don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just Levites doing all this stuff for you. It was, <laughs> it was hands-on. And it wasn't so patriarchal and sexist. Asherah actually had priestesses as well. Very egalitarian. And the worship, it was intelligible to the natural man. It appealed to their heart. You made the sacrifices not for your sins, but to please the gods who wanted them. 
And then they would reward you. What would they reward you with? Health and wealth. What we want in this world. It wasn't a promise of future salvation. It was good stuff here and now that they were worshiping for. And their prophets and their priests, they, they would read the entrails of the animals that you brought. And they would tell you the future. And sometimes, once in every you know, blue moon, they were right. Sometimes. And if things were really bad, if, if it hadn't rained for a long time and you were particularly devoted, you could, you could just sacrifice an infant child. And if you wanted a good harvest, well, you, you had sex during worship. It was all so sensual and intelligible to the natural man. It was exciting. You didn't have to force people to go to that worship. They stampeded to it. But you've got to ask yourself, don't you? How do, how do people get used to infant sacrifice? How do people get used to homosexuality being so rampant when those things had once been considered an abomination? Well, you guys know. We did, didn't we? What happens in a culture? Well, Alexander Pope was no Christian. Uh, far from it, but, but a, a wise man nonetheless from another age. He wrote, vice is a monster of such frightful mien, and by that is meant appearance. Vice is a monster of such frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft, familiar with her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. And that's what happened with the people of God. First they endured it, then they pitied it, then they embraced this false worship. We see here how declension of religion occurs in every age and has occurred again and again amongst the people of God. First it starts with, half God said, do we really have to do it this way? Can't we do it our own way? Can't we add a little something? God is, he made us a creative people. Can't we create new kinds of worship? Add a little here, take a little away that's kind of boring and stuff like that. Couldn't we have latitude in the way that we worship? We can add some, some interesting stuff, maybe from this culture and, and that culture and, and their feast day. And Oh, wait, they had a goddess. Maybe we could uh, we'll create saints. And we'll worship in, in their name and so on. We'll ask them to intercede for us. And is this sin stuff really so necessary? And is it really as bad as they say? I mean, to err is human. We all make mistakes, don't we? Isn't religion more about solving my problems here and now and making me feel good about myself? Isn't it more about you knowing that you're the best thing that ever? Who told you you can't achieve all your dreams here and now? Isn't that what it's all about? And what do I need? I need health. I need money. I need food. I need a nice suit. Well, a nicer suit. Mm. But brothers and sisters, is that what we really need? Is that our greatest need? Our greatest need is not found here on earth. Our greatest need is for what happens after this brief and momentary time of probation is over. When we enter into eternity. But that's not what is emphasized in this kind of worship. It's a theology that emphasizes that which is sensual, that appeals to the senses, its smells, its bells, its fires, its pyrotechnics, its, its loud music, its ecstatic utterances, its incantations. Frankly, it's sexuality 
that people understand you don't need to be regenerate to, to, to enjoy that at all. And can we stop calling certain things sin? Come on. Didn't God make everybody? And shouldn't we pity the sinners? In fact, shouldn't we embrace the sinners? Tell them that they're welcome just the way they are and so on. And after a while, what happens? Homosexuality and fornication are part of the covenant people's life. It's seen as normal. It's accepted and so on. And nothing, nothing is pointing to holiness. Nothing is pointing to Christ and the cross. Nothing is pointing to our need of atonement and so on. And that's the way it goes. It, it declines the same way. It shouldn't surprise us. It's like stops in a station. All of these, oh, okay, we're, we're coming up to the egalitarian. Stop, and now we're going to get rid of male and female roles. And oh, the next stop is homosexuality and so on. It's a decline. Read Romans 1.18 through 32 if you want to see how the decline in idolatry goes and how sexual practices are all tied up in that and so on. Now, a lot of people have tried to come up with, with answers to this decline. One of the big ones that was put forward again and again is, is tradition. We will have tradition save us from those things. We'll have the objectives, the externals. We'll build big cathedrals that are all, will awe people. We'll have beautiful choirs. We will have majestic uh, you know, buildings filled with all gold and stained glass windows. And our priests will be decked out to the nines. They'll have cassocks and surplices and they'll carry croziers and they'll wear a mitre and they'll do all of these things and it'll be so impressive and so on. It'll be magnificent. But please understand this. The temple that Solomon built was magnificent. But it wasn't enough. Look to your folders for just a moment if you would. I want to read the Sabbath meditation together. The magnificence of their temple, the pomp of their priesthood, and all the secular advantages with which their religion was attended could not prevail to keep them to it. Nothing less than the pouring out of the Spirit from on high will keep God's Israel in their allegiance to Him. The heart of the matter, brothers and sisters, is the matter of the heart. A Spirit-led, spirit indwelt heart. You remember we had that reading today. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And he says, good teacher. And he's about to launch into this, you know, this long monologue. And Jesus cuts him off. And he talks about the importance of being born again. Of having a new heart. Of having been touched by the Spirit. That's what the people of God are missing here. But you will notice throughout the Old Testament this emphasis that, that has to be on loving the Lord. If you don't love the Lord, you'll never obey the Lord. Solomon did well when he loved the Lord, but when his heart was drawn after women and wealth and vanity, he went astray. Rehoboam, unfortunately, we never once read Rehoboam loved the Lord, but that's the, that's the heart of things. That's the first and greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus added, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, quoting from the Old Testament, these things were there. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Follow what I have told you. Remember this, brothers and sisters. There is nothing. There's no pomp. There's no circumstance. There's no tradition. There's no external authority. There's no nothing that will keep us loyal to the Lord other than love to him. To love him with all of our heart and our strength. The Puritans knew this. They, they eschewed the, 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 the high church traditions of, of the Anglicanism. 
the Church of England that they, they saw as empty and wooden. They called them wooden priests and wooden worship and so on. It had no life to it. It did not engender love. It might have engendered awe in, in terms of the splendor of the buildings, but that wouldn't last. They wrote things like this. This is Thomas Watson, and I will, I will finish on this. Get a real work of grace in your heart. It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Nothing will hold out but grace. It is only this anointing abides. Paint will fall off. Get a heart-changing work. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. Be not content with baptism of water without baptism of the Spirit. The reason men persevere not in religion is for want of a vital principle. A branch must needs wither that has no root to grow upon. If we wonder why the church has gone after ecstatic utterances and all the kinds of craziness that you would have seen in the Canaanite religion, it's because we've lost, we've lost that, that heart of true religion, a revealed religion, a Holy Spirit religion. And we've thrown in all sorts of things to make up the absence, but we can't. What we need to get back to, brothers and sisters, is the word to revelation and to loving God. And I pray that's something that we will always strive for. Get a real work of grace in your hearts, brothers and sisters. Let's now go before the Lord and ask for him to bless his word. God, our Father, Lord, I pray that you would not let us be presumptuous so often. Lord, when we read your word, we say that could never happen to us. When, in fact, we know it could, we are no better than our fathers, Lord. We have all of the same seeds of sin within our own hearts, the same uh, proclivities, the, the same willingness to endure what should not be endured. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to, not to fall into these things and not to become prideful, not to think that pride will save us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, we know. We ask, therefore, that you would help us to be a people who are humble, who love, but who are committed to, to your commandments and to worshiping you the way that you have told us in your word. Let us not be caught up with the world and its ways. Let us not, O oh Lord, think that infant sacrifice or abominable sexual practices are okay. Help us, O oh Lord, to cleave to your word and to do so looking forward to that day when we will worship you face to face. And what an amazing day that will be. May it come soon. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.